0: I don't see a lot of people like me with my leadership style represented. And so when you're growing up in an organization, you sort of stop and think, well, that that could never be me. I could never be a senior leader because I don't see anyone who looks like me, acts like me, or thinks like me, or problem solves in the way I do. And that's also a piece of the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because if you can't see it, how can you be it?
1: This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to the Brand Story podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Mita Malik. Mita is currently the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta. She is also a LinkedIn top voice, a DE&I champion, and the co-host of the popular podcast, Brown Table Talk. Mita also writes for Harvard Business Review, Adweek, and many other important pub- publications. Hi, Mito. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm so thrilled to get to talk to you today. I'm such a fan of your podcast. Oh, thank you. And I learned so much on your podcast. It's, like, it's just, I think, such important work that you and D are doing.
0: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: You know, you've had such an incredible career, and a lot of your articles that I've read in different publications are so thoughtful and so well-written. You're a great storyteller, and I had read and something you would written that part of your purpose is to try to empower those that have been excluded and help them find their voice. Why is that important to you?
0: Well, it's important to me because it's really tied to my beginnings. I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised in the US and I grew up, Steve, in a time and a place where it was not cool to be Indian. It was not cool to listen to Bollywood music, to bring in Indian food. wasn't cool that my parents dropped me off in a minivan where you could hear, you know, Hindi or Bengali music, funny music being played uh, from the car. And, you know, that feeling of being bullied both verbally and physically by my peers, just being, you know, I it was very clear to me every day that I did not belong in that community. And so that feeling has always stayed with me. And I think anyone listening to this conversation can probably recall a time where they feel like they haven't belonged. And it's probably one of the worst feelings in the world. And that's pretty much driven me my entire life. I also did not grow up in an Instagram era. So I didn't see myself reflected in products and services. I always sort of wondered, like, who's who gets to choose whose stories gets told and why? And like, why aren't there more people who look like me? And Commercials, or movies, or in magazines, and so that also was something that really drove me. and And I, I was painfully shy growing up, as you probably can surmise from what I just shared about my upbringing. I was not I think that that's different than being introverted, but I really took to like writing and books and watching movies. And so I think that's no surprise that mm-hmm. I ended up being a storyteller.
1: Right. Well, you know, I'm sure that felt a lot safer to you as a child. It
0: did, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: You know, and it was a natural place to go when you're getting that kind of, um, you know, unkind feedback from your environment. Yes. You know, a lot of introverts end up there, but also a lot of people that just were environments that weren't friendly to them, you know, go to more of an internal world. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's part heartbreaking and part way too common that people have that experience. So that's one of the things I love about reading what you write and I love about your podcast is that. I think there are a lot of people that don't think about this and don't think about other people's experiences and don't have empathy for how different some of us are treated. Absolutely. So in the workplace, you know, I think it happens a lot. And why do you think that it's so key for us to try to relate to experiences that are our own?
0: I think it's absolutely fundamentally critical, Steve, in today's environment where since the diversity tipping point of May 2020 which is marked by the murder of George Floyd, which I did not coin, my good friend and podcast host, DC Marshall coined that phrase with diversity engaged. But since then you've seen a real movement of leaders, either really caring or pretending to care about diversity, equity, inclusion, and a real, I would say some companies putting emphasis around looking at diversity representation in their workforce. But here's the thing, how can you try to create a more diverse workforce And yet you don't understand the experience or try to understand the lived experience of what it's like to be black in America today. Hispanic, Asian, being part of the LGBTQ plus community, being a veteran. I mean, there are so many different ways in which we identify. And as a leader, if you're not trying to gain an understanding for experiences that aren't your own, I don't know how you'll be leading successfully in today's environment
1: yeah I think that that adds up to a lot of unsuccessful leadership. yes, you know that I think you've probably experienced firsthand uh, m- too many times yes. to mention. and uh, I think I've experienced it in a very different way, of course, being a white man in America. Um, I've seen it. I've not known what to do. I've been confused about it. I've felt bad about it. but I think the the movement to that started to happen around George Floyd is very overdue. And I think we're all learning. So that's, I really appreciate you coming out on the podcast today because I'm not sure all our listeners think about this all the time. So I'm really glad you and I get to have this conversation.
0: Awesome.
1: You know, I think a lot of leaders come at work and culture with the idea that kindness is a weakness and they sort of lump empathy in with kindness. So what do you think we need to do about that? And do you have any thoughts around that?
0: Anyone who has survived this pandemic, and I say that with a lot of weight because I lost family members in India to the pandemic. Anyone who has survived the last two and a half years and is still standing, how can you not understand and recognize that kindness is one of the most important skills lacking in leadership today? Underestimated, undervalued. Kindness is not my weakness, it is my superpower. Kindness and doctors, loyalty, trust helps drive business results. I don't even, you know, and I also think kindness, if I'm taking it through a gender lens for a second, I've been given feedback, Mita, you're too kind. You need to be stronger, you need to be firmer. You're being too nice. I'm just treating individuals with respect. I'm treating people the way that I would like to be treated. I can be kind, I can still be tough and firm and fair. And I can, that doesn't doesn't mean that I can't, I don't have to, that I cannot care about people course. Those, those two things can never be separate for me.
1: It amazes me that it's so hard for some organizations to understand that. And for and that comes down to the individual leaders and their communication styles or their backgrounds or how much empathy they practice in their lives. And I think the American like win at all costs mindset that's in some areas of business really works against people being kind. And I think, you know, women and, and and people who are empathic and people of color have taken the brunt of that because when you try to care for someone, if the culture of your company is, you know, this is a hard charging place and take no prisoners, it doesn't fit. And it's very, I think, can be very challenging for people.
0: It doesn't fit. And I also think that if you think about the way in which leadership has evolved and our workplaces has evolved, you've probably seen the pyramid, which is the CEO sits at the top and the rest of us. And it's the, the CEO, the leader, I will say he, in parentheses, historically has all the answers, is hard charging, is extroverted, is the person who will drive the results at any cost, will be the problem solver, will show no emotion, right? All those things that, whether it's through our own experiences, whether it's through media, whether it's through leaders that we've had to work for, that has, that I think was the old model, which is quickly shifting right now as well.
1: Yeah. I'm glad to see it shifting. I think, I think it's shifting in some places easier than others or sooner than others, but that's the way things always work. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad to see it shifting because I've experienced those cultures. I think the, the paradigm of the, the, you know, male charismatic, aggressive, extroverted leader is probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to us as, you know, a society or as workers or as people because you know, it's just about dominating other people, and not helping and encouraging them.
0: And it's really I would tell you it's really difficult when for most of my career I've worked for extroverted white men, many of whom have been great champions for my career and some of whom weren't, but I'm not an extroverted white man. And so what does that mean for me? Surprise in case you didn't know. So it's like how do I like What does that mean in terms of my leadership style? Because I don't see a lot of people like me with my leadership style represented. And so when you're growing up in an organization, you sort of stop and think, well, that that could never be me. I could never be a senior leader because I don't see anyone who looks like me, acts like me or thinks like me or problem solves in the way I do. And that's also a piece of the conversation around diversity, equity and inclusion, because if you can't see it, how can you be it?
1: Yeah, that is such a great point. I mean, that has to do with media and entertainment, and how we're re- how people are represented everywhere. But you're right, in a lot of organizations, whether it was just because that's what the culture of the organization, there isn't good modeling for either for behavior or for, you can't see yourself in the leadership team, so you probably discount that you could ever be there. Absolutely. I mean, it, you are getting a message by that behavior. You know, I'm so glad it's starting to change because I've seen a lot of negative examples. And, you know, one of the things, you're you're an incredible storyteller. I work in brand marketing and I always think about how much culture affects brand and how some companies think brand is what they say outside of their company. But I've always believed that culture is the cornerstone of brand. So how, what do you think happens when there's that disconnect between how people are treated and what companies say?
0: Your employees are your forgotten consumers. I will say that again, your employees are your forgotten consumers. I've spent too much of my career and have been taught to think about who I'm gonna sell, how much of what to and why, and we forget about our, our employees. They are our consumers. They can be our fiercest advocates. They can also be the whistleblowers and the individuals who will say enough is enough and I'm going to call you in or call you out on what's happening here. And so I always say like, when you're ready to put out that press release or that Instagram post or that initiative that you're so proud the company is doing, stop and ask yourself, would your employees say that this is their experience here? And that's, this is a difficult question, Steve, because I'm not gonna say that like one person's experience at a company doesn't represent everyone's experience. It's not a monolith, but if, A good portion of your employees are uncomfortable with the press release they've seen put out or uncomfortable with an Instagram post, then you have to stop and ask yourself, like, what are you doing this for? I mean, I've worked for I've worked for a lot of different companies and a lot of leaders who were really excited and very quick to, like, put out the social media post when you're like, that's not the experience of what's happening here. And so that's that's really that's really and I think especially in this day and age employees will very quickly call you out on it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad because I I'm, you know, I've been this is our 27th year in business. So I've seen an awful lot and I've seen people when it was a matter of diversity or a matter of a PR event go to the message before the problem. You know, and not look at fixing authentically fixing the problem or authentically addressing the problem. They want to go right to the message and just say that it's okay. And that kind of like disingen- you know, disingenuous accent, act, action always just drove me crazy because it's, you know, you can't be, you can't say you're one thing and be another. It just won't work. So I think it's really, really
0: a challenge for companies. I also think when you make mistakes publicly, I'll bring up Walmart for as an example, and I have a lot of... Um, friends and people who I admire work there. And when Juneteenth came out and the ice cream edition, which I had written about for ad week, and there was lots of discussion in the media about like, how could Walmart get this wrong with this Juneteenth ice cream edition, a celebration, tokenizing the trademark, the party supplies, all of it. And, you know, one of the things I've realized as I've led companies through crises is like, when something like that happens externally, go and talk to the people internally about what happened, go and talk to your employees. Because I would say uh, some of my friends who worked there were blindsided that that had come out, right? And so also to also know that like, I always say, Steve, like those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Every one of us leading will go through a crisis someday. And so it's very easy to point and be like, look at what they did. I can't believe they did that. It can easily be you one day. So the question is, like, we're all going to make mistakes. You apologize. And then what are you going to do to show up and show that you're going to do better and be better? And I think part of that journey is going back to the internal piece, to going back to talking to your employee base of what you did externally and how you might have messed up. In some cases, I will say more than messed up because people will say, Nita, it wasn't, it was racist, it was sexist, it was homophobic, like what we call things by their name. But whatever mistake you've made, going back to the people who matter the most, which is the people who are the heart of your company and the engine to say, hey, we did this. And this is what we're going to do.
1: I think that's extraordinarily important. And I've seen it being in, you know, brand and marketing, and, you know, being involved in crisis communication teams in different industries. I've seen you know, CEOs refuse to do that. Or I actually, you know, had an experience where a CEO was asked what audiences should be reached out to and they didn't include employees. And then that turned out. And that was
0: huge... be number one.
1: Oh yeah. I couldn't believe like the board was first. And I was like, really? Okay, let's stop. You know, like that's not gonna work. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I think I think keeping employees in mind and being honest about being honest and transparent about what you did wrong is as important as what you did. Right. You know, you have to, just like as a person, you have to be able to stand up and say, yeah, we got that really wrong and own it for the people that you did it to.
0: Listen, I always say, um, it's, it's the non-apology I get from my husband. I'm sorry I made you feel that way. No. And our relationships, with people are just like our relationships with brands. like, I don't don't tell me you're sorry. you didn't make me feel that way. you You did this that made me feel that way. So call this out. Tell me what you did. And that's what I think is missing in so many apologies when um, brands do have something to apologize for is acknowledging what they did wrong specifically, to help educate everybody, right? And some people listening to this conversation might say, "Well, I don't understand the example you just used." Okay, so if we went back to that brand's apology, would we understand? And in many cases, we don't. Still, it's it's the non-apology.
1: Yeah, I think non-apologies do more damage. Yes, they just they just increase the damage. They're it's a it's just like any poor behavior. Like if your spouse does it, you get more resentful and more angry. If a brand does it, it's the exact same reaction. You know, I, sometimes that seems so simple to me, and yet I've been in rooms where it just wouldn't penetrate. So. It's a complex thing how people don't want to own up to something that they've done. Um, so you you recently wrote a really thoughtful article for Adweek on inclusive storytelling, and you mentioned both the Umbrella Academy and Miss Marvel. And then I just read another article, literally this morning, from you in Adweek about Miss Marvel and the importance of representation behind the camera, which was really great, and very eye-opening. So why do you think it's so important for marketers and storytellers to be thinking about inclusion and representation when they're producing, you know, media and stories?
0: Nothing for us without us. You want to talk about the black community. I don't identify as black. I identify with the black community. I'm on a journey to be an ally for the black community. But if I'm a marketer and I want to speak to the black community and I have no Black voices around the table. How how, how do I do that? And, and that's why I think, Steve, the point you make about um, what I talked about with Miss Marvel, which I thought was just fascinating, was from the head writer to the cast of directors, right? So what you, the script, what you want characters to say is just as important as how those characters visibly show up on screen, because that's the disconnect. I could, in the case of Ms. Marvel, which does an amazing job of breaking stereotypes for the Muslim community, I could cast a very uh, diverse cast of Muslim actors. And yet the individuals writing the script have no cultural competency or knowledge or understanding of the lived experience of what it's like to be, in the case of Kamala Khan, um, Kamala Khan, a Pakistani American. Uh, growing up in the United States. So that's where I think it's just that, that miss of like the director, the writer, the cast, the crew, all of that, the entire ecosystem, even, you know, who's doing your hair and makeup. Right? All those things. I had a situation recently where someone wanted to phone me for something and they had offered me makeup. And I said, do, do you have somebody who um, does makeup for dark skinned? And I could feel the pause. They probably, so all of those things matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, people who get into the creative, whether that's, so I spent years and years directing theater and people who get into creative and they're working with human beings to tell stories, you know, you're only, you only have your experience. So if you're going to portray something that you don't understand, you better get some help, you know? And I think setting up, I'm so, I haven't seen the Miss Marvel show yet, but I can't wait now because that sort of authenticity, you know, a few things you mentioned in your article where, you know, the everyday life of her experience is portrayed in ways to help the audience understand what her experience really is. I don't think you'd get that without the team that's telling that story.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't. And I think one of the things you're bring up for me, Steve, is like marketers have to have more humility. And I was trained as a marketer to be very arrogant because you're supposed to know, like I'm supposed to know you so well as a consumer, I surprise and delight you with something you never expected a product or service. But the question now is, do I know the history of you and your community and how that might show up and how I'm trying to reach and storytell? And so I think that there is this shift on like marketers needing including myself, the journey I've been on, more humility. There's so many things I just don't know. And it's okay. It's okay to get that help and then bring all those voices. And I always say, it's like, you know, I'm not the brown woman who speaks for all brown people. So I'm not the the token at the table. Just because you have me doesn't mean you need like, you know, multiple voices throughout the ecosystem of marketing, making sure you're doing your very best to represent the story you want to share.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and you know, you would know your story and you'd be able to relate to your world, you know, but you I think marketers, you're right, have been trained in a lot of ways to be really arrogant about, well, we know our audience. And I also think that you know, to a certain extent human beings have things in common, but when you're really speaking to someone that as individuals you're trying to market to them or it's to a community, I think authenticity and making sure that the message is going to resonate with them becomes very personal. And if you don't truly understand them, you you need to get some help to help you talk to people in a more authentic way. Because you see a lot of marketing that tries to be one size fits it all and it just doesn't work.
0: And that's the, that's like the opposite of marketing, right? Yeah, <laughs> it is. That's the irony of like what marketers are supposed to do. Like actually, you're not doing a good job if you try to be all things to all people. I love Miss Marvel. There are a number of people who won't enjoy watching it. And that's cool because it wasn't Created for you. And and that's the beauty of marketing. Yeah.
1: And I think that's like a sort of an old school way to look at marketing that still is very prevalent. Uh, but you know, I, I've seen companies do messages that were going out to, you know, it was a diverse audience, but they're like, well, that's, that's the message. And the message is from their point of view. And you know, like you just know when it's going out, it's only going to resonate with the people that share their point of view.
0: Yeah, and even like going back to the Miss Barville example for a second, I was talking to a friend who was like, oh, it's so interesting, the interchangeable use of like Urdu and English in the script. Yeah, yeah. And so if you were somebody who had a different lived experience, you might think all that should be translated or it should be either in English or in Urdu. And you know what? Growing up in a first generation household, my parents often spoke to me in Bengali and I responded in English. And so that's very much and the interchangeable use of words. Like, it's not like you're speaking one language 100% of the time. And so I thought they did that beautifully. But if you didn't live in an environment growing up with multiple languages, they're also using Arabic um, in the series as well. You wouldn't know that. Like, And that's okay that you don't know that. But find someone who does know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, because you're trying to portray something in the world that's real. And you're trying to get, you know, you're not only entertaining, When you're entertaining, you're teaching, you're modeling. And I think getting that level of accuracy, you know, which is going to be different for every character in every community, that's just like, that should be award-winning because that, that level of detail is, I think, what people should strive for in storytelling because that's where, that's really where we start to relate to each other as human beings. When we make it too clean, like, you know, everyone speaks one language or the other, that's not reality. Everyone blends everything. So I think that's, I can't wait to watch the show. Your, your, your article made me want to watch the show really bad. So, so why do you think, you know, that, that whole thing with representation and inclusion in media, uh, you know, this is kind of a naive question, but I just want us to be able to talk about it. Why do you think that's so important for young people? You know, it's important for us, but for young people who are watching these shows, why do you think it's, it's so impactful?
0: I think it goes back to, if you can see it, you can be it. The, also the stereotypes of, you know, what the media will portray of, of who is cast in what roles and why. And even, you know, for a long time, individuals of color being sidelined in stories never, you know, Bridgerton two is another great example of storytelling I talk about. Cause I was like knocked off my chair, seeing two dark skinned, South Asian women as the lead in a, you know, romantic Victorian era storyline, which would never have happened. And I never could have envisioned that. Right. And so that's, that's why those things matter. It also matters as we talked about because we hold on to those stereotypes and bring them into the workplace. And so if you've never met anybody Indian of Indian descent and you watch a piece of film that represents somebody Indian only in one way, you hold on to that, right? And it's a way our brain just works on shortcuts. That this is the only person I've ever met who's Indian. And so I think X, Y, and Z. And so that, whether I realize it or not, formulates my worldview on a community. And imagine if every single person is doing that, which we are, sort of the effect it can have in organizations where we all show up to work. And so that's why it representation matters so much in everything because then we just get more access we have more data points right and then on top of that we should be really striving to form relationships with individuals who don't share a lived experience that we have
1: here here i mean i think we i think we learn best from other people's stories and i think you know storytelling whether that's in media like a show like Ms Marvel or stories that people share or any kind of you know, images we see, human beings are, you know, programmed to like see and learn. So the things we see really do give us sort of a shorthand for the world we live in. So I you know, I think shows like this are gonna have such a positive impact, both for the people who see themselves in it, but I also think for the people who don't see themselves in it. They're they're being exposed to a culture and people who are different in a positive way, not in a way that they're being highlighted as other and dangerous, which I think the media has done a lot of harm in that way.
0: Absolutely, and I think also for anyone listening, you know, our our sort of instinct is let's go to the a primary source to get access to a story. And and what those of us who are on a journey to be allies for communities need to know is people have a lot of trauma around things they've endured, especially our black black poly, colleagues and friends, where it's intergenerational trauma. And if you want to be an ally to the black community, or as I am on a journey to be the ally to to the black community, you don't need to always ask your black friends what they think about topics. You can Google these things, right? To find other sources of stories, right? Because too often I see organizations put pain on display, meaning it's the burden of black and brown people. Okay another horrible Asian hate crime happened, let's gather our Asian employee resource group and ask our Asian colleagues how they're feeling. You No, please don't do that. No, no. As an ally, start thinking about what are the ways in which I could talk to my Asian colleagues about, do they feel safe coming back to the office? I ended up writing a piece for Harvard Business Review entitled, do your API colleagues feel safe coming back to the office do you understand what's happening right now in this country with the intensity of xenophobia that we're seeing right and so that's where i always like try to flip for leaders like you you don't need to go ask this person how they're feeling we probably know how they're feeling especially with what we're seeing in the media but like how can we as allies, come up with ways in which we can be helpful and then go back and ask them. Be like, we know this has happened. We know this is happening. Here are ways in which we would like to help. Like, what do you think about this?
1: Yeah, that's such a great perspective. I read that article you wrote in Harvard Business Review. And I think that perspective is so important because, you know, it's such a shortcut just to go ask someone that, you know, is in a community that something bad happened to how do we deal with this? And, you know, you're, again, it's just a lack of empathy for how would you feel if it was your community that was being targeted? And would you really feel like being the person that was asked for the solution today? That's a lot, you know?
0: Absolutely. I really, think this is a really, um, the point you raise about, you know, we're talking about this, the sentiment in this country, anti-Asian hate crimes that continue to just increase in an alarming rate. I was talking to a leader who said, you know, I'm, Six five and a white man. Like I am extremely appreciative for you being vulnerable about how you're feeling about going on public transportation. I, I haven't thought about that because that's not my lived experience. I'm five one and a half. Steve, the half is important to me, but I'm five one and on the petite. If I get pushed on tracks, I don't have a chance, right? And so I think about that a lot. About uh, in a way that I didn't two and a half years ago. I think a lot about my. I think a lot of my friends and family do as well. And so for him to just even say like don't stop sharing how you're feeling about these things because somebody has to, and I didn't, was not something that crossed my mind. And that's, I think when it comes to like the journey of allyship, that's the vulnerability, like for someone to say like, thank you for sharing that. I hadn't thought about that. And that's actually changed my worldview. And as a result, I'm going to show up differently tomorrow.
1: I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I think people are scared to talk about these things because they're afraid to get something wrong. You know, they're, they're, they're sometimes afraid to say the wrong thing or ask the wrong thing. I think the only thing we can do before we're all on a different journey as human beings is if you get it wrong, just say, I'm sorry, I'm trying to learn. And I think, you know, the having empathy for other people's experiences opens an entirely new world for you. And that, that brings me to your podcast. Oh, yes. Um, so you have this popular and brilliant podcast called Brown Table Talk. Oh, thank you. That I listen to every episode. And oh,
0: Steve, thank you so much. I
1: love your podcast. It has helped me, it has taught me, and I'm learning every single time you you and D talk. And it's fascinating because it's not my my experience, but I feel like I'm learning things that I that no one I I didn't have access to learn. So, it's a wonderful thing if, if anyone listening wants to just increase their knowledge as a human being about other wonderful human beings, you need to listen to this podcast. So where did you all come up with the idea? Because it is a brave, fearless conversation you all have on this podcast.
0: So we came up with the idea, I met Dee in 2017 at the Multicultural Women's Conference. Uh, She stepped off stage and I was like, I wanna meet this woman. She became my coach during a time where I was in an incredibly toxic relationship with a former boss and in a toxic work environment. And who knew that that would sort of be the journey? Like, I'm the client she can't get rid of. I joke. But I think over the years, just, you know, exchanging text messages, dinners, late night phone calls on stuff we were both facing in the workplace, that it was during the pandemic is that I think we should start a podcast. I, I don't even consider myself a podcaster. I don't know anything about podcasting. I knew I could probably rescale or upskill myself to to actually technically do a podcast, but didn't want to spend my time with it that way. So we hired um, Rich Cardona and his team to help us, Cardona Media. And it was, you know, what you do, Steve, is a lot more difficult because you have guests and you have some sort of responsibility, obligation to help tell your guest's story. For D and I, it's a bit easier because it's a, a reflection. I think you'll see of a deep friendship respect, admiration we have for each other. So we don't do a lot of pre-planning. We know the topics we wanna to talk about and sometimes we've talked about them before and other times now we say, wait, let's save it for, for the podcast. But part of it too was I didn't see Steve, a lot of people in the marketplace talking about the experience of women of color and what really is happening behind closed doors. And for instance, Adam Grant is someone I, I love and follow. Uh, in terms of all the things that he shares about modern work. And sometimes when he shares things, like he shared a post recently about um, how important it is to be able to disagree, which I agree with, right? The ability to disagree. And I thought to myself, I don't have the privilege to disagree at work. Because when I do, I am labeled as difficult, angry, all those things. And D and as a Black woman, you know, would say the same thing. And so I just thought, wow, like there's just a different lived experience I've had at work. And so I'm just stepping into my truth now. And I feel like I have a responsibility to share some of these stories. And, so, you know, Steve, it's been interesting. You have women of color reach out to us to say, it's like you're reading my journal. These stories are not I wish they were unique. I wish I was so special, Steve, to tell you. Only my mother thinks I'm special. I'm so special, Mina. You're so special. These things have only happened to you. They have not. Because sometimes I think people think, oh, you're a storyteller. You're creative. You're making these. All. I'm like, nope. And, and, and what's really validating and what has been so therapeutic is other women of color saying, no, no, this happened to me. And also individuals like yourself who are on a journey to be an ally saying i'm learning a lot like i have never no one's ever shared this with me like i never had access to this story and now i'm actually thinking differently about if i see this happen at work what i might do
1: yeah and i think that's crucial because i think that you all have opened a door you know and it's an invitation to listen in and learn and i think you're both wonderful storytellers and it's because it's because you're not making it up. You're just telling these authentic stories, and you're telling them from the heart. And you're having conversation. Your all this connection really helps the the program be that even that more accessible. So I hope more and more people listen to it because I think it it adds an awful lot of value to any listener.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. We're a part of the LinkedIn podcast network. LinkedIn just signed us for another season, so we'll be season four this fall. We took a little hiatus, but we'll be coming back with a jam packed. Season of lots of more juicy topics for you. Guys. I'm glad.
1: I'm looking forward to it. Do you have a favorite episode so far, or a moment that has really stuck out to you?
0: Oh, that's like you asking me to choose between my kids every night. Who's your favorite? Really, it's me. Really, it's me. Um, you know, one of the first ones, and a lot of people haven't actually listened to season one because we self-funded and then LinkedIn picked us up for season two and onward. You know, I, I we did this episode on like how to get credit for your work. It was one of our first ones. And I was just really surprised that a lot of white men in my life reached out to me and said, like, this happens, like your work has been stolen. And I was like, I guess we've never talked about it. Yeah, it's happened many times. And so I always think that's really interesting when the people in my life are like, you've never talked about this, that one about like, getting credit and having work stolen that, that episode still people are just like, that happens at work on like all day, every day to a lot of people. And so that, that to me is like, that was one where I was like, Oh, like, I, yeah, that had, that's happened to me many times. And I have many different tips and tricks on like how to stop that from happening now. But that to me was just like, yeah, it happens. Like I, I didn't even just so used to it. And then other people being like, just shocked that this happened. Shocked. Yeah.
1: Shocked I think that's one of the great things about the podcast is you learn about, you know, the experiences that you've had and D has had. And sometimes you learn what you've gotten used to. And it is shocking what you've had to get used to. And I think that's where a lot of the learning comes from as well. So what in general do you hope, like with season two coming up, what do you really hope people are taking away from the podcast?
0: Yeah, I think with, you know, with season four coming up, I... You know, it was sort of naturally in our conversations that we started talking about what allies could do. I don't think that was actually the intent when we started, but it just started naturally happening because I was like, I don't want this stuff to happen to anyone else. So what would I had wished someone would have done for me then? And so that's what I really hope is that like, what do you do, Steve, if you're my colleague and I'm constantly mistaken for the other brown woman? Constantly someone thinks I'm someone else. And you are watching this happening and you as a white man are like, this makes me uncomfortable, but is it my place? What do I do? And so I hope you start to discover, yeah, it's your place. We all spend too much time at work and pour too much of ourselves into this, not to protect the cultures we're creating. And so I hope that people all think, yeah, like I want to be, I don't want to be a passing bystander. I want to actually make an impact and stand up for someone in whatever small or big way that is. And that's what I really hope the movement is that we're creating.
1: Good. I, I think that's wonderful. And I think I, I get that from the topics and the way you talk, um, and the conversations you have, uh, I think that it's extraordinary because it is really helpful because I've been in situations, whether it was, you know, a moment of casual racism or a moment of like sexism, which happens an awful lot and i've had moments that i've stood up and done what i thought was right not knowing if what i was doing was appropriate and i've had other moments where i let it go and then later still feel a sense of shame
0: about I used it to rewind it in your head yeah i do yeah
1: and, you know it's like you feel shame you know if you didn't do so knowing getting a better sense of what you should and shouldn't do and how to do it i think you're you all are doing such a service by sharing your stories and and letting people listen in.
0: you know what i would say is it's never too late to go back and have that conversation and interrupt the bias that you saw. Oftentimes I just said to you, like I've been so, oh my God, so many moments in my career, I would just rewind, rewind. I've also been in situations where I should have stood up for someone else and I didn't. I was scared because, you know, being an ally, it's not for free. It can cost you your humility. It can cost you your pride. It can cost you your comfort. Sometimes there's financial consequences. And so thinking about like, You know, if I'm in a group and you publicly say something that is uncomfortable, you know, maybe in that setting, I'm not going to publicly say something to you. And maybe the weeks have passed, but maybe next time we have coffee, it's not too late to bring it up if we have a good relationship. And for me to say, hey, Steve, listen, I think most people have good intentions Right. I think there's like nine, you know, 99% of the world has good intentions. I mean, that's how I leave my, lead my life. Otherwise I can't do this work. Other people might disagree with me. So 1% of the people deserve to be in the headlines, deserve to seek redemption and deserve to move on to whatever they need to do next. But most people just don't realize the intent versus the impact. And so if you can find the kindness. The grace to explain it to them, and I also will say, as I say on my podcast, Steve, our podcast, it's not my job to constantly do that. It's not my burden, but if I if I in the moment feel like I can, I will. And as as a, a chief diversity officer, it is my job, and I and I do that.
1: Yeah, I think you know, helping helping people understand and and choosing how to teach in those challenging moments is you know a, a really a fine line then everyone's gotta find their own way. But I, you know, I really applaud you all for helping people understand, you know, how to even start sometimes. So why do you think, you know, you can't in every situation, but in some situations, you know, I I I saw you write about some of the crazy things that have been said to you that I think are all too common about like you speak English so well or where are you really from? Good lord. How how can those challenging moments like that uh, do you you know do you advocate for giving and giving feedback right on the spot if you can or you know are there any types of methods or how you think about that when those kind of things happen
0: my favorite one recently was like how did you get rid of your accent and i'm like i don't know how did i get rid of my accent okay well here's the thing steve if if you catch me on my private time if you catch me in a personal moment at a bar or restaurant, I might respond differently than at work, right?
1: Sure. But yeah. at
0: work, I, I try to that. show a lot of kindness and respect. Or when I'm working with um, leaders like yourself, I might just say, like, um, you know, wh- what made you what made you think that? Why was that your first thought? Or, oh, you got rid of your accent too. I noticed, right? There's also like, there's like, there's a ton of way to do it. Oh, well, where are you really from? Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So I think that there's, there's. It just depends on your relationship with the person. I think like asking open-ended questions. You know, I am so like plagued by the mispronunciation being renamed my entire career. I now, whenever I join a call, I always say, "Hi, Steve. Is it Steve? Did I say your name correctly?" And Steve will say, "Oh, yes." Like, and Steve might be surprised that I'm asking. And then Steve will say, is it Mita? And I say, yeah, it's Mita. So we start off, That's the, I think everyone has to do what's comfortable for them. But I do that because I don't want to go through a whole like butchering of my name during the first time I'm meeting someone. So I, from the start, sort of set the intention. And also I get names wrong too. I'm not perfect, I'm far from perfect. And so I also ask people, and I also say, if I'm getting your name wrong, I do a weekly LinkedIn audio room where the audio rooms are great, but also there's there's no way until I call on the person, like I don't know if I'm getting the name right or not. And so I'm always like, if I'm mispronouncing your name, tell me, like help me.
1: Yeah, just op- open-ended questions and being curious and being kind goes a long way, you know? So I think that those are, those are great, It's great advice. And it's, you know, something I hope everyone does a little more of because talking to each other and having empathy for each other's experience is really how we grow ourselves. You know, it's how we become a better version of us.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I love the point about curiosity. You know, one of the things that I have gotten a lot of flack for is my conversation around where are you from and how much that really upsets me when people ask me where are you from. But here's here's the point I wanna make. It's the where are you from I'm from New Jersey. No, where are you really from? Well, I was mostly raised in Massachusetts. No, where are you really, really from? Well, I was born in Michigan, and it's not the like Steve. Oh, where are you zooming from today? Uh, where do you consider? Where do you consider home? I'm taking it, because when you get to want to get to know someone and you show curiosity about their lives, I will it will be I will bring up the fact that I'm of Indian descent, like it'll be it's part of something I'm proud of. But it's not the first thing you need to ask me because you see someone brown show up on screen or in person and you feel the need to, you know, you don't check your bias is what I'm going to say, because the impact I feel is you're questioning whether or not I'm American and whether or not I belong, even though that wasn't your intent. So even if you might be curious because I show up looking different than you thought, I would I would park that for a second and just get to know the person because eventually they will share with you what they want to share with you.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I'm so glad you said that. I've heard that question get asked and I always get a shiver of humiliation for everyone involved because it's just, yeah, not only is it biased, it has this assumption connected with it. It's just one of the ugliest questions I can think of, you know, it's just not a great way to start. Right, right with anyone. You know, I think if we were all just a little bit more aware of what we say and how we say it absolutely, and, you know, just relate to people and let them offer what they want to offer. So what's a piece of advice that you've been given that really stuck with you?
0: Mm. I was just given a piece of advice this week, which I I hadn't really thought about. It's really interesting. The person said to me, there are three things you need to consider about your career and like what you want to do in life. It's like, What are you passionate about? What are you really good at? And what do other people think you're really good at? And I was like, huh, wow, I had never thought. I mean, okay, now that I say it out loud, people are like, oh, yeah, duh. But no, I never had really thought about the intersection of those three things. As you think about, like, what drives you? What do you want to do next? Like, what impact do you want to make? I thought, huh, wow.
1: Yeah. And that, uh, that taking that external view for a moment, like, what do people think I'm good at? Does that line up with what I'm good at? Yeah, I really like that. that I, I can't say I've walked around thinking about that. Now I'm going to think about it. So what would you name this chapter of your life? Because you seem to be having this like amazing amount of success and renaissance with how you're telling your story right now.
0: I would say stepping into my power and truth. I think I was just too scared for too long to talk about things that I was like, well, nobody talks about those things. And I was like, why not? Why can't I talk about those things? And so that's where I think... Um, I'm in right now. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday who said, your content on LinkedIn is just killer. And I said, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. I just actually just think it's true. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's not that it's like, I, I someday wake up, I'm like, ah, but killer content on LinkedIn. It's like, no, you know what? I was just thinking about how I've been ashamed about being a quiet leader. Like it's there's like a, there's like a shame attached to that and I'm going to say it out loud. And like, it's been, it's not easy to say that I'm a quiet leader because I, you know, would I be more successful if I wasn't? So right. So it's just the things that are true or your life experiences. And that's, that's what I'm really just leaning into right now.
1: Yeah. I really enjoy your content. And I think when I, when I see your content, I always just think, well, that's honest, (laughs) you know, I just like, that's authentic and honest. I really like that. We're going to have some links in your, uh, landing page. We always put together a landing page. One thing we'll put there is your podcast, because I would like everyone that's listening to please go and listen to, to Brown Table Talk with Dee and, and Mita, because it is fantastic. And so we'll put that in a link to a few of your articles too. And what do you think um, has made an impact, the biggest impact on you as a storyteller?
0: Biggest impact uh, um, for me was losing my dad suddenly five years ago. And there's nothing like grief to change the the course of your life. So I think actually, like, if I really think about it, still grieving him, but going through some of the harder parts for anyone who's who's grieved someone they've lost is like, yeah, you only have one life to live. So I'm sort of just like I I, in a way that I didn't before treat every day as like this day is important. And so that's probably why also the honesty comes through in the content that probably wasn't that way before. If you actually. Uh, I someone actually had me do this exercise where I went back through my content over the years and you definitely can see a shift where maybe I was more of like the presenting someone else's perspective. Here's a great article I read in the Wall Street Journal about. And you're like, okay, so, but now it's like, oh no, this article resonates with me because X, Y, and Z happened to me. So I think that shift has definitely come with uh, just through grief and loss.
1: I, you know, grief and loss can change who you are and we're all going to experience it most likely in some way. So understanding it and and getting through it, you know, never goes away. I've had, I've had grief and loss affect my life in huge ways. And, you know, I'm grateful to the grief for who it's made me, but I can't say I had a blast going through it and I still go through it. But I think what it does is make you more appreciative of connecting with others and, and trying to just really be yourself
0: that's really powerful i don't think i'm there yet to say i'm grateful for the grief but that's like a really powerful place and like something i want to think about of like where i destination in my journey
1: yeah it's a a long road i have a i have a good counselor so (laughs) a really good long time grief counselor who's a wonderful human being so and you know my my entire career is just based on i i love learning about people I just love people's stories, which is why I started this podcast the way I do it, because I am just fascinated with other people's stories. I always have been since I was a kid. So, you know, it's a, it's a joy for me to get to meet you and and talk to you about some of the stuff. I could do it literally all afternoon. What for you, for the audience listening, what would be a must read or, or a must watch or listen that you would recommend for people with with all the stuff we've talked about? What do you wish people were reading
0: more of? Oh, you have to go listen to Brown Table Talk podcast. I can't not like, this is the new me. I have to promote myself. Right. But I, all the things I never did in my career. Um, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. My husband thinks I waste a lot of time, but I do it because I find that it's like, as my friend Callie Schweitzer says, a platform of generosity. There's a lot of things to, I think, learn about what's happening at work, the modern workplace business. And so I, I, there's like a lot of people I just follow and, you're, you're somebody I've gotten to know through LinkedIn, like how amazing that like we got connected and I see you come in through my comments and like we engage. And so I think that's great. Um, and I like to read a lot of the business pubs, which I'm thinking a lot of people are reading fast company ad week, but also like, you know, uh, one of the things I'm trying to focus on in my life is like watch things and experience things that I normally wouldn't be drawn to. So, uh, full disclosure, I am obsessed with Yellowstone and Kevin Costner's. And, and, you know, I've never actually really watched anything, I don't know, set in Montana, based in sort of the, the world of cowboys and rodeos. I don't know if the show is doing um, an appropriate job of um, representing indig- indigenous individuals. That is something I'd like to research. But also, like, I think just pushing ourselves to, like, watch things and do things that we normally wouldn't do to grow as leaders um, and not necessarily be drawn to, cause it's actually really interesting. Like it's easy for me to be drawn to Miss Marvel for all the ways in which I talk about in the piece, but wow, like maybe let me watch something that like wouldn't necessarily be something I would watch and try to learn something different. So that's what I would really encourage people to do.
1: I, I love that answer. You know, I'm watching 1883 right now. And oh, that's the prequel, you know, right? Yeah, it's the okay. prequel to Yellowstone. And that's a, a, only a few episodes in, but it's it's amazing. It's extremely well done.
0: You know, I also, there is a piece, I, I actually shared this on LinkedIn. There's like a whole sort of conversation. You know, when you think about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's like they did not um, receive an Emmy nod. And there's a whole discussion around like coastal elitism. Right. And is it, is it set in Montana? And so then I got some blowback on LinkedIn. They're like, no, it's just not as good as succession. And I'm like, okay, maybe, true, but there's just an interesting idea that I hadn't thought about that like, uh, you know, coastal elitism. And like, you know, when you think about uh, the different kind of biases you might have, like I never thought, wow, like that maybe wasn't nominated because of the type of story where it was set. Huh.
1: But yeah, that article made me really curious too. Well, actually, I actually have one last question for you that I always ask everyone. If you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be?
0: Do it afraid. Spent too much of my time caring what other people thought and afraid to take risks, so.
1: That's a wonderful answer. I think we could all embrace that. Thank you so much for being on. I, I can't tell you how much how much fun this was.
0: Thank you so much for everything you do and for your podcast.
1: Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.